Okay, uh, today I'm talking about a, a big one, uh, the sovereign individual, how to survive and thrive during the collapse of the welfare state by uh, James Dale Davidson and William Reese Mogg. So this book was uh, originally written in 1996, and it has uh, kind of caught caught steam, I guess, in, I don't know, 2016, 2017, um, with the Bitcoin community, as they say, um, and the crypto guys. And um, basically, uh, the reason why it's so po- one of the reasons why it's so popular is because it really accurately predicted so much of what has happened, because when they wrote this, they, you know, the, the internet was a, a shadow of its current self, and uh, obviously, Bitcoin uh, didn't exist. Actually, I should know that, but I don't know when Bitcoin actually started. Uh, even though I've audio booked uh, the <laughs> Satoshi book, which is the writings and the forum of Satoshi, which is really good, which I would recommend um, if you're curious. Um, but anyhow, yes, yeah, so the sovereign individual, Lord William Rees Mogg, is the father of. Uh, if you live in the UK or know anything about Brexit, is uh, is the father of uh, crap. What's his name? Uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg, <laughs> who is a very interesting character. If you've never heard of him, you should uh, YouTube some of his stuff. He um, can really uh, uh, set uh, you know people who believe in the European Union, he can really uh, set their hair on fire, just uh, listening to him talk a little bit. He's uh, super smug and super assured of his positions, and um, I don't know, he's, a, he's, he's an interesting guy in a, uh, in a sea of very bland, predictable people. Uh, but anyhow, The Sovereign Individual, I feel like I have more of a history with this book than, than many of the other, if not all the other books that I cover. I originally had a colleague recommend it to me, and I forget why he wanted. He just came in and wanted to start finished it. I guess I guess, he says he. Read it. I can't believe he read the whole thing, um, but he says he read it. Not that it's that long, but it's just very dry in parts. Uh, and he wanted to talk about it one day, and I was just like, okay, yeah, great. And I didn't really know who Jacob Rees Mogg was at the time, but he was, you know, saying that he was reading it just because. He's like, you know, you gotta, you gotta keep up on what the posh boys are doing and what, what they're thinking. In this case, uh, posh grown men. Um, but uh, yeah, so uh, he, he was touting it. I didn't really think any more of it. I kind of was like, oh, okay, yeah, great. And then I forget if I saw it on Twitter or something, or if it was because uh, the Made You Think podcast, which is. I think I say in my opening episode was the inspiration for this just because I enjoyed their podcast so much and, and just was starving to have somebody talk about these different books that I was curious. And I, I found them by Googling on the podcast, Apple podcast app. I just put in go to Escher and Bach. <laughs> and I think there was like one result and it was their podcast. And then come to find out they covered all these other books that I liked. So they did theirs in September 2017, Uh, and uh, I ended up buying a hardcover version of the book for like 17 quid in May 2018, and trying to read it, and just, you know, it was good, it was good, but I just wasn't, didn't have the time to sit down and read a book, and I wasn't wasn't looking for, to do that with nonfiction when I did have the time, and um, and so I kind of set it aside. And then eventually it came out in audiobook, and that was a really big day for me. Uh, I was really excited, and it has a, a preface by Peter Thiel. Uh, so yeah, so obviously this thing has gained a lot of steam uh, because it's uh, so many of its predictions have come true, and someone so many you know would have seemed yet to come true, but their advice or their predictions would seem to be applicable for the future given what has transpired in the past. 
which I don't think people focus on enough of, you know, who, who has been right. And those are the people we should listen to going forward, as opposed to just everybody just takes a, takes a shot. And, and then we never seem to revisit um, who has the track record. Um, what else? Um, so now the book is uh, 46 quid on Amazon. So uh, quite a financial coup for me there. Um, but uh it eventually came out on audiobook. I listened to about, I listened to maybe half of it, and then, uh, and then actually I kind of got a little bit bogged down, and and it probably took me like, didn't come back to it for maybe six months, and and then just finished it the other day. Um, actually, it couldn't have been that long. It couldn't have been that long because I was, I took notes on it the whole time. So, I, and I don't know when I started doing that, but anyhow. Um, just to get started with my uh, bookmarks and notes here, um, he says uh, the cyber competition, the cyber, basically the the gist of it, and 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 I went back and listened to the Made You Think episode, and I sort of was surprised um, that they kind of just used it, they as they do with a lot of their episodes, but I guess until you've actually uh, audiobook the book or read the book, you don't know how much of um, the content of the book they're exploring and how much of they're just kind of riffing and using it as a jumping off point. Uh, and, and so I think as with everything that I talk about, if you actually want a good outline of the book and its points, you should probably Google that. Whereas I just kind of, uh, talk about the, the, the notes that I made that of, of things that, uh, popped out and were interesting to me while I was listening to it. Uh, or I thought were critical. Uh, he says that they say that basically the cyber com- economy will usher in competition between governments instead of what they they um, characterize governments as now as a, a shakedown racket uh, because you're basically paying and most people are are not getting a whole hell of a lot from the government. Um, obviously, that's people could debate that, but that's their position. Um, and then they say, you know, if you want, if you can work and spend from anywhere, you will presumably work and spend from where taxes are the lowest. So, yeah, given now that you can get paid in crypto or that you can, um, you know, just work over the Internet. Obviously, coronavirus has, has proved this to be incredibly true. Uh, and so this may be you know, kind of the uh, whatever Facebook and, and has said that, uh, you know, people at the end of. 2020 when he just say the new locations where they're working from and that their uh, pay will get uh, based on whatever based on living uh, living cost of living in those areas um, uh, and so you say that the version of modern barbarians are Russian gangs and uh, I think in the last episode Peter Zihan would say that yeah the cartel infiltration into the US um, and the kind of these things, these entities that live outside of the law and use violence. Um, they say that the middle talent in developed countries will be the, the haters on this cyber revolution and fleeing from taxation because they they will not be able to be, you know, they will not be uh, the first of the sovereign individuals that will move away. They will be the ones that will kind of be stuck behind not getting... Uh, whatever, not being recipients of the welfare state, but having to pay for the welfare state, I think. Uh, he goes on to talk about basically that there have been, he goes through examples, uh, they, they go through examples of uh, different independent states that were super powerful and things. And he talks uh, a lot about the Knights of Malta, which are worth the Wikipedia and they're interesting. And then he talks about that there was have always been areas that have been out of range of taxations so he says that there was these march march reasons i don't know exactly the spelling march regions uh like say in between uh, i guess uh, the celtic area of uh, britain and uh, whatever britain proper or whatever was governed and then also in granada in spain um they include a quote that says the universe rewards us for understanding it. Um, this is a quote from Jack Cohen and Ian Stewart, which I guess I thought was kind of interesting. And he's saying that violence 
does pay. And a big part of the, you know, it's the easiest way to steal wealth is just to hit somebody over the head. But what he's, the impetus for the book is that violence used to pay much larger rewards in the medieval era, in the old West, and 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 even in the 20th century. Um, but that the rewards to violence going down is the main reason why I think they say that the nation state is going to go away because the nation state is here to protect you. And if you don't need protection, then you don't need to pay taxes. Uh, and if you are, and if someone can't storm into your home and now that, I mean, they obviously they have done this, I think in, where did they do it in, in London or in, in Russia or something where the people storm into their house and they demand their, their Bitcoin keys or they're going to kill them. But, um, but I'm sure, I guess maybe if they can, if they can build something up, some type of defense or switch against that, that would replace that. But um, he thinks that the nation state will be an inter, uh, national governments will be replaced by smaller states. And uh, I just have a note here where he starts talking about, you know, the threat of Y2K. And so that at first that seems very silly. But I guess the reason why it's, it's in such stark contrast is because so much of what the book, the rest of the book talks about is either, you know, history that hasn't changed that is applicable to the present and the future or uh, just, you know, very prescient uh, predictions and, and things and, and clear scenes so that when it's very uh, rough when you, you know, bump into Y2K or something that was obviously, you know, that didn't turn out to be a big deal. Um, but what it does do is it does do a good job at, you know, showing you that when this book was written. Uh, and then I guess also a key thing here is, and something to, that I found interesting to think about is because, uh, you know, you can very easily look at, at, at books like this as kind of um, mental onanism or, or something like that. And, you know, why 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 uh, delve so deeply or why why read a book uh, like this? And, and they are positing that accurate forecasts are more beneficial today than they were 500 years ago due to the speeding up of history. And... Uh, that book, uh, Revolt of the Public, that the Stripe Brothers published on their in their at their publishing house, I think uh, is very interesting. Uh, following along in that vein, and then obviously people saying that whatever we're you know uh, in my area, uh, private equity real estate, you know, talking about um, coronavirus having sped up trends in offices and retail and hotels that would have taken like 10 years. Um, you know, they have just been pulled forward uh, such a, a great degree. Um, and then he made another interesting point is he's talking about how, you know, people just, life expectancy was so much lower. You know, Native Americans were killed by germs. Um and uh, like white people just couldn't before quinine or whatever they just couldn't handle living in malaria regions, and so they're saying that a um, the a very high I don't know if mortality is high or low, but basically you know if you if if there's a high death rate that that makes um, death and war a lot seem a lot more benign and a lot more palatable, and so that also increases, I guess, the returns to violence because, you know, the downside of violence is not very, is not very high. Um, uh, he talks about how technology dictates what um, the thinking or the philosophies of the time. And he says that all men are created equal um, was written in a time when a U.S. farmer you know, could fight back and shoot with his hunting rifle, whatever, long rifle or whatever, uh, against a British soldier with, who had a brown vest. Um, and actually, he his gun would be much more accurate than the, you know, low accuracy brown vest. And that no one in 1276 would have said that all men are created equal when it was a farmer would have a pitchfork versus a 
knight in armor with a you know war horse and all the uh, the amount that armor cost and to feed that horse and just all of the training and just every everything that went in you know this so who just cut down i forget how i think they say like you know how how many peasants it would conceivably take to take down a, a knight but 20 or something like that you know he could just mow them down uh and so he says, the more, they say, the more dispersed the technology technology gets, the more dispersed government will be. And they use the example, I guess, of machine guns, you know, saying that whatever it gives, it gives everybody a, a I don't know, a, I guess a fighting chance at, and um, can kind of dictate their own rules. Uh, they come back to this idea of that, um, the, of, of, uh, of technology ushering in centralized control, saying that these uh, dusty air war horses, and then they found out about the stirrup and the horseshoe, and basically that just yeah, they, it ushered in the, the age of knights and and the fact that these kings and nobles could just dictate control over a large area. Uh, it talks about uh, the run up to the year one thousand saw people giving. Uh, a lot of their land to the church, I guess, in, in fear of the kind of like a Y2K type of thing. Um, and then also, I guess, people would get into tons of debt. And so they would give their land to the church or to a noble. I think most back then it was, it was mostly the church with the proviso that, so they would sell their land to them with the proviso that they would still be able to remain, live on the land and work the land, and then get, uh, you know, whatever, be able to keep some small portion uh, for subsistence to feed their family and things like that. And um, and also because, I guess, you had all of these, the returns to violence had gone up, and so all these people needed protection because they couldn't protect themselves from somebody that wanted to, whatever, gather uh, for five or six nights together and, and just you know, uh, rage on the countryside. Uh, he has a quote here by a scene, Northcutt Parkinson, uh, perfection is only achieved by institutions on the point of collapse, uh, which is kind of interesting. He says, uh, he talks about how, um, uh, basically just, uh, the, not morals, but, uh, the things that I guess our society uh, I guess he's talking about, you know, he's talking about nation states and and saying that the different things that our society values now or traditions or the things that we feel confined by that in, you know, medieval age, they, they had their own things. And he, that much of the book is spent talking about the church because the church and the fall of the, <clears throat> the fall of the Roman Empire, but then also the, the, the control that the church had and the fall of the church once its apparatus became uh, overburdensome and it wasn't pulling its weight, he thinks that the nation states are basically at the same point and they will go the same direction as the church. But he, in order to just show an example of kind of the difference in values, he's saying that King Henry, I guess, got separated from his, uh, whatever, from his little retinue or from his men or something like that at Agent Agincourt, and that he um, slept behind enemy lines uh, to instead of risking his honor because he could have easily removed his armor and snuck back to the British side. Um, but he, but but basically he would, you know, that would have been so uh, um, lowered his, uh, his maybe his effectiveness to to rule. Or just that he, yeah, he didn't want to sacrifice his honor. Um, uh, they go into just one of the, and this is kind of an interesting uh, thing for anyone who has any, uh, I guess, experience with Catholicism or, you know, any people are obviously, everyone is, a lot of people are very anti Catholicism, but um, so it's not like you need to really throw gasoline on a fire, but I think it would be something to be aware for Catholics to be aware of just as uh, th that I've never actually heard these critiques, but it's so crazy that the amount of days that you could not uh, have sex with your wife, uh, that the church dictate was like Sunday, Wednesday, 
and like Friday and um and and just different days that you uh you whatever couldn't and so they would literally charge like a tax if you wanted to break one of those days. So it was like something like you could only actually have sex like 56 days out of the year uh, which is a little bit crazy and they say that's where that um fish on fridays originated was because um the church uh whatever was bequeathed or given or owned a bunch of fisheries and that you couldn't just you know uh transport them inland so it's basically everybody on the coast needed to eat them uh so they had to find a way to increase demand um, they equate the Berlin Wall that was trying to uh, keep uh, the people that you know were um, the people that were intelligent or were educated and uh, good for the economy, trying to keep them in East Berlin uh, instead of them just like being getting educated by the state and then going to the West. And obviously, where Cuba has had a, I think has had probably had a problem with uh, similar things. Um, but, and the big news back then for, uh, people of their income bracket or wealth was that Bill Clinton had, um, made it harder for U.S. citizens to renounce their citizenship in order to escape tax taxation by imposing a, basically like a, an exit tax. Uh, and then, uh, he talks a lot about capitalism and democracy and, and how they go hand in hand. And how, like, maybe democracy is not necessarily this uh, uh, this unmitigated good that was just thought up for the benefit of the people, but actually as the, the head monarch, or not the head monarch, but as, as a government that wants to collect taxes, it's a lot easier to collect whatever, 20% of thousands and millions of people's uh, um, income than it is to collect 20% of the income of like whatever the top 20 lords or nobles because obviously then they they can just say like wait a second guys shouldn't we get together here shouldn't we push back on this and make it 15% so yeah democracy facilitates taxation uh, as well as works well with industrial capitalism the democratic decision making made it easier to control and tax the many uh, and I guess that's all that they have kind of say about that early bit. Or those are the only notes they, like I said, they go on and on about the church. Um, one of the interesting things that this made me think about is, uh, you know, you we always hear about um, all the people at the coal mines getting shot by the by the. We we're just I was just watching the movie Margaret with by Kenneth Lonergan and it has like Anna Paquin and their the teachers telling them about how the whatever the Pinkerton detectives were brought into the different mining towns and and shot the strikers and things like that and you, they had like a GM sit down strike and so what they do is they, they actually equate that to violence because it's, it's saying that you know he, basically what they say is that the welfare state and the trade unions were arc, artifacts of um, technology and they basically are sharing the spoils of power being uh, power beating efficiency so it's not you know the fact that um, they can you can really just they can't just pick up and move a, their operation from Detroit to a non-union state like Georgia or something like that. And so basically these people who are doing sit-down strikes, you know, they're, they're, they are actually, um, uh, you know, it's not their factory. They're, you know, they're, they're forcibly occupying it. It's not their coal mine. And, and so you're saying that basically that this is given kind of like uh, the workers, you know, this temporary thing in whatever the 20th century, they've got have more, um, more power than they've ever had and that that power is going to go away and dissipate when whatever all work is done not online but like whatever if it's you know if it is a coal mine they'll need fewer people uh, and whatever robotics could kick in that type of thing um and he's saying that uh you know in these different auto factories and stuff it says a job that you can learn in a day is not skilled labor <laughs> 
<laughs> so I think where he's getting at is he he did they don't they you know these guys are obviously sitting very high on their horses, um, but they they you know they really sympathize with the whatever the industrialist or the plant owner or something like that, and they kind of give a completely different perspective that I had never I never really thought of or heard of, uh, which was interesting, uh, and I guess they're saying that you know. And obviously, Bitcoin and crypto is going through these teething right teething bits right now. Um, with it's oh, it's illegal, and you can't connect your credit card, and all this banking rigmarole and stuff. Uh, they give, but they give the example that faxes were illegal because the postal service said that it was the whatever the sole uh, job or area of the postal service to uh, uh, to have. Uh, interstate uh, text communication and obviously that seems ridiculous to us now um, he says that the transition to the information age means roads will start crumbling but that doesn't matter so much because uh, the commutes will be will be uh, will be uh, remote um, he talks a lot about I think he thinks that Canada is more on the verge of um, breaking apart than the u.s and i think uh, peter zihan would maybe agree with that he thinks he thinks that alberta is going to split off because alberta is the only like uh, province or the territory province that pays more in than it gets out and it's also and it's also like you know looked down on and they all they hate all the canadian oil and gas and they're killing the environment and da 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 da, da. meanwhile that's funding all of uh Canada's social spending and everyone else is just take, take, take. So um, he thinks Alberta is going to uh, secede. And then this guy is also talking about, they, he thinks Alberta is going to secede. And um, and then that, that will make it harder for Idaho and Montana and Oregon and these other uh, states like to compete once Alberta can, uh, you know, whatever, have low taxes and have its own uh, um little country going uh, which i thought was kind of interesting that he thought that, that would uh, that would uh, cause some some friction up there uh so they said that there there's this hirschman guy that wrote a book about exit in 1969 obviously that's a whatever a hot topic exit is whatever the uh, i guess maybe the accelerationists or people on twitter and podcasts are always talking about exit 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 um uh, he says that cities will empty out and that they were an arrogant aspect of industrialization. I keep saying he, but I mean they, but you get the point. Um, that uh, the, the support systems they need, like that a city has, they need a production economy or another lucrative tax base like tourism. He thinks that London and Paris will remain... Uh, not functional, but whatever. Uh, will remain good. Will remain operating. And he's trying. They're trying to say that nationalism is a rather recent construct. That before, yes, there was a uh, a, uh, a oil, low loyalty that was owed to the country of your fathers or paternal regionalism, but there was not this nationalism that we we see today. And so he thinks that as easily as it came in. They, that it will go away, uh, and that basically the tax burden is going to just go up everywhere, and that the benefits of the police and pensions, uh, because of whatever you know, because of the decreasing returns of violence, I guess there will be less violence. So it will not, you know, the, the benefits of police will um, go down, and the ease of living well and making money anywhere are going to go up. Um, I just have a note here that's saying that at the time of the French Revolution, uh, the French language was different everywhere, and there was a different patois in every every little region. And so, that actually, the things that they were trying to communicate or um, had to be translate all their broadsides and all their sheets that they were trying to communicate their revolutionary message on had to be translated into all these different dialects. Uh, that's obviously definitely true in in Sweden. And um, I guess maybe a, a lot of countries, but I guess what he's trying to show here is that there's the regions go back a long ways, but the, the, the modern French language and the French state is something that really just um, 
maybe not the French state, but a cohesive structure of the French language wasn't even there until the French Revolution and maybe after it. Um, he says that uh, the Russian officers communicated in in German, I guess, in, in the beginning of World War One, uh, while the common troops only communicated in Russia, and then that actually was kind of a problem. Um, and I think it's kind of this is Christopher Leach, or it's Christopher Lash, and my autocorrect has just kicked in. But he's this guy says that the the but, and obviously we've seen this, and this is a, a you know a big thing that's been repeated many times since then. But I, you know this was. Uh, back in 96 this is not such an obvious statement that the international elite have they have way more in common with their fellow international brethren people that either you know have whatever have properties in multiple countries have multiple passports or just simply have the amount of wealth that if something were to happen to their own country they could easily just sell out and, and move out they have more they have much more in common than um than with their their countrymen who are who are less well off and obviously brexit was a big um, uh, result of this and he said uh, yeah it was christopher lash and he says that you know it's easy for them to embrace diversity because they're basically they're basically tourists because they're not tied to one specific one specific region uh, a reoccurring theme in the book um is is that is basically it will become increasingly increasingly a winners take all world with pay based on relative performance rather than absolute performance. So the idea, I guess, that if if you're making eight ten widgets instead of eight, you get a lot more money than the guy that was making uh, eight. Um, I think that was something that I even went back and tried to tried to 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 think about, but. Um, absolute performance I, I don't know what i don't know exactly what i mean by absolute but obviously relative it's just the, the person who's the person who's that much better basically saying that the person who's maybe 20 percent better would actually earn like 200 percent more it won't just earn 20 percent more um and he talks about that I, I don't know if this is what swiss switzerland has in place today um but it says he talks about like a 50k swiss franc tax and so basically everybody pays 50k so yes if you make 50k then it really doesn't make sense to live there but if you make 5 million then yeah it's uh that's a great deal um and that you know people would say that that's a reasonable price to pay for police and things like that uh he thinks that they think that you know like nation states have, nation states will go the way of away the way of the church and that citizenship will go the way of uh, chivalry uh, and the amount spent on protection for uh, personal s services went down. Um, I'm sorry, I don't understand that note there. And I, I listened to a lot of these clips, but not that one. Um, something that they highlight here that a French colleague of me has also talked about is, you know, that basically, the, I guess this is maybe the most common um, um, overgrowth or um, decadent aspect of the welfare states is that the uh, train engineers in France, they have like, I forget if it's like 55 or something, they have like this insanely young retirement age. It might even be less than that. Um, they have this insanely young retirement age and at the time, and when they retire, then they get their full pension, which is, you know, uh, which is a really good pension. But the reason why they had this young retirement age is because when they were used to have to deal with coal and all the fumes and the smoke and the soot and everything like that would get into their lungs and and, and, and they needed to you know get out of that before they whatever it was the death of them and so now that retirement age is still the same but all the trains are electric and it's basically you know just like an office job and so um yes the, the that type of excesses of the welfare state he would he would equate to like the excesses of the church and saying that they the church had uh made a lot of money because whatever they had so they basically they had all these days where restricted where you couldn't have sex but then like so i guess the wives would follow that um but then prostitution became big and so they were actually supposedly selling prostitution licenses and they probably i guess and supposedly the bishops different bishops in the uk actually had brothels and owned brothels and this is a huge money maker for them so it's just uh, it's incredibly uh, disturbing and uh going back to the relative versus absolute production just saying that you know in the 20th century uh, a genius and a moron on the same assembly line 
produced the same amount. <laughs> Both the genius and the moron in the same line produce the same amount daily. Um, talks more about, sorry for pause, it talks more about what are victims and putting the burden of social welfare on the, the private uh, as opposed to the state, which is kind of a libertarian talking point. Um, he says that you you can't really get away from this uh, this idea of redistribution, that <clears throat> whatever, democratic capitalism handles it in its own way, but that every society talks about redistribution uh, from love your neighbor, and Jesus in the Bible, or black magic, and um, uh, whatever it says, I, it says that what people, you know, would, would put a knife to the throat and rob people, um, and that witches were often uh, widows or unmarried women that needed money from their neighbors, and um, so this is super interesting. So they, so so obviously, like burning witches was something you know, witches were witches were a problem, and obviously they didn't have um, any way to really fight back, but they needed. They were you know deprived, or they were they were they would starve, and so they they were they needed the assistance of their neighbors it makes me think of the scottish widows like the first whatever investment fund or pension fund set up it's kind of interesting that people seen and i think or people banding together putting money together and then if they died the widows would be the only ones that would get the the funds and so it was basically to yeah to to provide life insurance um for your wife uh, to, to, to protect against something like this. And again, the Scots, yeah, they're super, super interesting. Uh, uh, high saver community, as he will uh, get to in a little bit here. Um, but that basically uh, maybe set, you know, the threat of casting a spell or black magic, uh, you know, hey, if you don't help me out, uh, then yeah, the village, if the village as a whole doesn't help this old woman out, then she's gonna, she's gonna um, cast a spell, and I mean, maybe the crops will fail or something like that. And, and they're saying that, like, back then, uh, you didn't need to be necessarily that strong because there, you could, uh, a widow could just s sneak into a field and take down the fence and set the cattle loose or set your house ablaze in the middle of the night. And how you know how would how would that I guess they ever be found out? Uh, they get into uh, some stuff that kind of applies to the different uh, protests and things going on right now. I think they're definitely very uh, predicted predicted what is going to happen if you have um, a large segment of the population uh, at, at a whatever at a much lower uh, income level and much uh, less well off for a long period of time. Uh, so that what's happening uh, with the Black Lives Matter protests and things would not surprise uh, these guys at all. Um, he talks about diff different, like kind of like the Luddites and, and different things that were, um, you know, different industries that were protested. It was only the industries that, um, you know, the, there was different industries that weren't that weren't affected or that hadn't even weren't even in play before uh technology uh, came in and so you really you know you only have the the luddites revolting in the the areas obviously where they're affected um and so he talks about like you know what like what's going to happen when china starts automating their job their jobs and they're saying that is it any is it any uh coincidence that uh, with NAFTA in the 90s and things like that, that the Unabomber and, and things popped up. That seems to be kind of a little bit a weaker bit, but uh, I think it's maybe if given more time or, or given hindsight, they can now like, go into pretty good, uh, probably uh, provide more evidence for that. Uh, this is a quote by John Dunn. It says, Democratic theory is the moral Esperanto of the present nation-state system. The language in which all nations are united, the cant, something like the, uh, summarize the cant and and dubiousness, uh, whatever the I don't know, citizens take in, but it says that only an imbecile would take uh, democratic theory at its face value.
I just, I guess the thing I thought was interesting is, because uh, for a while, I don't know when this ended, but they thought, oh, Esperanto has a chance. It's going to take over. It's going to, it's going to kill English or something like that. And then English just obviously dominated. I mean, no one even, probably a lot of people don't even know what Esperanto is anymore. Um, and he did talk about how there's different areas, like, uh, that was like not a very good UK television show. It was kind of like about art and stuff. I forget if it was called, it wasn't called Monaco, I don't think, I forget, but it had Julia Stiles in it. But, you know, that was talking about the Freeport, this Freeport where people would store their paintings and stuff like that. And so you could basically buy it in that Freeport and sell it 10 years later and never have to pay any tax on it. And so a lot of people just, whatever, store their stuff there and it's transit and things like that. But um, in this... Uh, island on the principe or uh saying there's a concession free zone of 50 kilometers on the island and how the language the official language is actually english and the dollar is their official currency and um you know whatever it has a i forget it has a 500 year lease or something like that but um uh basically he's just trying to say how that there's these different in addition to the knights of Malta way back then and that, that it wouldn't be that hard to set up these different these different areas in the made you think podcast they were talking about like what if peter Thiel and a bunch of other guys like just went and like bought a bunch of land from the from the brazilian government or something like that and set up their own country and then you would have to like petition or try and show you show why uh you should be able to join that country is kind of uh interesting uh they say politics is the only area where leaders are selected democratically. So i.e. Um, by that merit, it has to not be a best practice. There's no successful businesses where uh, people are democratically elected. Uh, they had raised it. They said they had, ran, had random selections for offices in ancient Athens elections, um, which was uh, supposedly specifically to keep uh, lawyers and psycho-egoists out um, because those are the only people that are attracted to politics and, um, and given that there was no guarantee of being reelected since it was completely random, uh, people in Athen Athenians were freed to, uh, just solely rely on rational analysis. He also, an interesting idea they talk about is paying presidents and prime ministers with a share of their gain on the good policies. So that would be, that would be very interesting to say, like, I mean, obviously you get into how do you measure GDP, but obviously the conversation of the president wouldn't be that much, but say like, okay, you know, whatever you, you get, um, I don't know, a certain percentage of all of the GDP gains for the next 20 years or something like that. Um, I mean, it would be interesting to, you know, get some economists in there and really line it up with the incentives of, 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 of what we want. Maybe probably GDP wouldn't be the best one, but, um, you know, that would be amazing too. You know, so they could get, become fantastically wealthy, more wealthy than they could ever become by cheating the system. By, uh, yeah, looking out for the, the future of their, of their fellow citizens. Um, Obviously, yeah, I guess maybe uh, there wouldn't be any guarantees, but that that would that would also presumably attract a lot uh, different talent than what is currently uh, going into the area. And he's saying that as it is, um, that he's saying that basically politics should be completely abandoned because so much of the time is spent the candidates putting up a facade. Uh, and they spend only the people to succeed are the people who are really good at being superficial and basically tricking the voters. And there's no way the voters have enough time to really discern like who's honest and who's going to do the best because you know it's just just uh, ridiculous. Um, and he says you know like um, politics can't really affect change for an individual like they can with consumerism. And saying, what if, you know, your other needs, your food, you engage in politics and democracy rather than personal market decisions. I guess saying like, oh, what should we eat tonight? And some people say green beans and some people say steak. And then you just have to, if everybody votes for green beans, you have to vote, eat green beans. Um, and then they talks about if exit becomes so uh, pervasive 
that they may say, okay, fine, you know, you don't have to, you don't have to, everyone's paying this exit tax. Instead, we'll let you stay here, but we'll just give you, let you do a lump sum buyout of all the future tax that you would pay. Uh, that's, that's kind of interesting. Um, and they kind of go on to say that different, um, whatever, different source texts or different kind of, not religions, but different ways of thinking um, will will change just because of, of it's useful given the surroundings. So basically different, um, not morals, but, uh, oh gosh, I don't know, frameworks for thinking. Um, you know, the idea of, I guess the idea of the nation state, but he's saying that basically the chivalric texts were completely surpassed by Machiavelli as the prince because the prince was more useful uh, given the technology that was available at the time that wasn't available, say, whatever, 100 years before. The key difference that they these guys would have, though, against most people is that they don't think that democracy will be replaced by corporates because um, the key of the book is the fact that contracts are the basis for firms. And the only reason why there's firms is because there's there would be too many contracts to keep track of, and it's just so complicated that you need this overarching uh, company to basically control all these contracts. But with crypto, it will be so streamlined and so easy, and the idea that trust will be uh, instilled in the in in the contract. You you know you just have, you just look has someone has someone reneged on their contract before? You know the the idea of, of relationships will be so much easier to form because it will be um, the, violating the the contract will be you know have such a huge punishment and everyone will be able to see it on the blockchain that this person was not trustworthy uh, so th- so he thinks it's going to be they basically this is going to be replaced by the title of the book the sovereign individuals will replace democracy and corporates uh, firms will be replaced by many auctions so instead of having a company with 20 people on it everything will just be outsourced and people will bid on it and then you know I, they don't say this but obviously with the blockchain you, I guess you could probably see what how their past performance and, and rankings uh, set uh, firms will have no reason to exist because they are artifices of information they are artifices of information and transaction costs Information technology reduces uh, the costs for information and transactions. And so ergo, enter in independent contractors. And um, I think even, you know, obviously within tech and and whatever different, uh, I would assume, I don't know for sure, but different, you know, like really productive coders, they would become contractors and things like that. But I've even heard from a colleague that like uh, her ex-colleagues at Cerberus would like ask to become uh, independent contractors uh, because I guess it put them in a different uh, tax system in the UK and then obviously gave them whatever flexibility with their hours and things like that. Um, the, maybe the thing that people would raise is saying, okay, fine, you're talking about like building roads or not even building roads, but you're just talking about law and order and funding police and how it's a low cost system, blah, 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 blah. But what about something like World War II? And they're saying that um, we won't need to tax to fund World War Twos because there won't be any more World War Twos. And I think what they mean by that is that the you know the capital will just not be like consolidated into such certain areas that that uh, you know there's huge benefits to taking it over. Uh, it'll be everything will be so much more dispersed uh, as warfare falls. Uh, due to the deep decreasing returns to violence and the lack of funding, uh, defense will become smaller and and more um, private, uh, uh, whatever commodity, and and those private contractors will, will will come up. I guess much like we're seeing, uh, you know, that that couple in St. Louis hiring private contractors to um, to. Uh, be stationed at their home because they're uh, afraid of of protesters or someone coming back and doing violence. Um, As nations recede, this is is a little bit troubling, but this also uh, meshes perfectly with Peter Zihan. As nations recede, the triad gangs and cartels will rise even more 
And I guess the trick is here is that you just think, okay, fine, they're just doing their thing with drugs. But no, actually, since they have this incredibly high margin, lucrative business on the side, um, they they can get into clean companies and then they don't care if like a dry cleaner you know, really needs like a 10% margin, they can do like a, whatever, a 2% margin or a 5% margin just because they need to park their, their ill-gotten gains somewhere and that will drive out, actually drive out the, the good companies. Because uh, I, I was wondering, why, why are they talking about, like, I didn't, I didn't actually follow up on it because I didn't, I didn't, honestly, I didn't want to know. But they're saying that, you know, like avocados are the new conflict diamonds or like they're conflict food because the cartels control so many, especially the avocado farms. You know, so we're already kind of seeing that. And then um, I haven't actually, I've, I've been looking at uh, and watching the Princes of Yen uh, documentary, but I'm not all the way through it. Uh, this is recommended by Hugh Hendry, which I think he has, he, he's down in, um, he's down, he's talking about, so he's a former hedge fund guy in the UK who, who now has a podcast and he's been on Real Vision a lot and He's a little bit, uh, a little bit schizophrenic, and um, he's an interesting, interesting guy because he's obviously very, he's very wealthy, and he, but he also seems very, um, you know, hanging out with a lot of. He always seems, he always seems a little bit um, not self conscious, or he, um, mm, like maybe his hedge fund performance wasn't as good as he would have hoped it would be, or I don't know. He's, he's a very interesting, interesting guy, but he, he seems, he seems a little bit. Um, um, so sad or um, I don't I don't know what I'm talking about. Right? I think you'll get the gist if you watch him. But he's, I think he's a very interesting guy. He's a very honest guy, um, and he's very super super interesting. Not not boring at all. Um, but anyhow, um, he talks about how he's bought a hotel in St. Bart's after the hurricane went through and all of the good things about owning a place in St. Bart's. And so, and then the the head guy of Real Vision, um, Raul Paul or whatever, you know, he's he's located down in um, oh, I forget it's one of those tax haven islands uh, that you always you always hear about. But uh, they're so they're kind of doing the the sovereign individual thing a little bit to an extent, um, um, differently than you know, say your San Francisco tech bros or the the media think guys. But it's the same type of, same type of thing. Um, but what they talk about here is that, so that back in the so Hugh Henry he recommended Princes of Yen. That's how I got on that tangent, and I've started watching it. And it is a really good documentary, and the the book is based on. You can read that, but he said the documentary is almost just as just as good. And you'll get all the same facts out, and so that's very interesting. Basically, talking about base a centrally managed government and a lot of MMT, and is this the way that the U.S. is heading? Um, going to basically is what Japan did in the eighties or post-war era, a blueprint for what the U.S. is going to do. Uh, but they say that um, a lot of money, the money that in that was in the Japanese real estate market boom in the eighties was yakuza backed. So basically, like even if the loans went bad, the banks couldn't collect on them because the yakuza, whatever the yakuza would just kill them, or there was no, there's no way that was going to happen. They go into a, a chapter about Roger Morris's book Partners in Power, talking about the uh, alleged crimes of the Clintons saying that Bill Clinton's uncle was in the Dixie, something called the Dixie Mafia, and that Bill Clinton was in the CIA in uh, government in college, and once he was uh, governor, which is uh, kind of interesting. Um, it goes on to say that there was a uh, Hillary Rodham Clinton's commodity trades. The chances that they were actually legit, a supposedly a university in northern Florida, uh, along with another university, calculated that there was a one in two hundred and fifty million chance that those were clean trades and not um, whatever done after the fact or, or payoffs or, or cheating of some sort. They weren't just like, oh, I think corn is going to go up, so it, so it did. They had had some inside information or whatever. Somebody altered the books posts after the fact in order to transfer payments. Um, and that Bill Clinton was also, when he was governor, who was very on very warm terms. And I think he had like a campaign bundler or whatever that was a drug dealer, a big time uh, distributor, drug dealer. There's a PGO Rourke quote that says, uh, "This uh, Bob says things about Bill Clinton that Hillary wouldn't even say." 
that's kind of uh, also kind of a Y2K throwback, you know, talking about back, uh, talking about whatever their marital uh, friction, which now I think everyone just kind of accepts as a something. Um, the only way to reduce corruption is to reduce public intervention. Uh, so, and then, well, there's this essay by some Italian guy, and basically they're saying that the IT revolution is going to do this. It's going to greatly reduce the public intervention, and then presumably redu reduce corruption, and I guess things will become more efficient. Uh, they give the examples of the Quakers as being extremely good in business because of their, you know, basically their ethos of no cheating, uh, you know, treat others how you, you would want to be treated, and that they were a high-saving community. I thought that was interesting. I'm talking about, you know, obviously there's lots of high-saving communities that are uh, more famous than, than the Quakers. Uh an upcoming book, The Millionaire Mind, piece for that. They talk about um, the, uh, the the nationalities in the U.S. that had the highest um, wealth, highest net, wealth, net worth or whatever uh, by nationality are Russians, Scots, and Hungarians. And they talk about how English aren't in there. Uh, you know, they've been here the longest and had the most land. So, Again, yeah, high saving communities that, that I would, that, and I guess the interesting aspect of that is that there's not only, um, you, you, you get built into that, that that's important, but then also the people you're hanging out with are doing the same thing. So it's maybe not, you know, uh, it's, there's no, uh, yeah, there's no influence to like go buy a new car or something every year or something like that if you're in that type of community. Um, he talks about, they go on to talk about, um, elites and uh, elites and basically uh, say I don't know it's, it's kind of interesting they kind of they kind of um, feather out into, into a, a lot of different little things at the end here um, like talking about Bill Clinton it's almost kind of like a grab bag of their personal philosophies uh, but it's I think it's I think it's still it's still interesting and it's still stuff that you maybe not not getting everywhere, um, but uh, saying that the, the increase in divorce um, and, and different fads, uh, religious-wise or anti-religious-wise, is saying that basically the elites will be brought up as pagan and moral illiterates, uh, and that their educations and experience will be so cosmopolitan and it will be unconnected to their local communities and not saying that that's inherently bad, but because um, the local communities just by necessity have to be more moral because they're all dealing with the same people. Whereas if it's, if you're an international or global type of person, you know, the, the, there's lower costs to possibly being uh, dishonest, I guess. Um, But I guess it's saying as the, so as the youth of the elites go, uh, so go the elites, and as the elites go, uh, so go the I guess the the influence uh, in the in, in the modern world. Uh, it says that good business needs unconventional thinking, and where actually morality is the opposite of that because it does not change. It's saying that the the science of Genesis is worthless. But the morality of Moses still stands, like you know. So that 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 hasn't changed. Everyone can can you know be, will agree on on most of the Ten Commandments and things like that, or they're reinterpreted in basically the same the same way today. Um, and so yeah, so this bit is a little bit on get is, he gets into morality and the thinking behind that. But I I I, I, I didn't I thought I, that part was equally equally good. Um, and then kind of just the final note uh, saying that collapse is what happens when the centralized structure is not worth the cost. And that once uh, the tax rate goes to 27 or has already gone from 27 to 37%. And that, but if crime also increases at the same time, one, how can this be? And, uh, and then two, it's obviously not worth it. And, um, I forget if this is in The Art of War, this is in some other book where they got this, but it says, the 36 ways to avoid trouble, the best is to leave. Getting back to that idea of, 
of exit. And a couple of notes back here, back when, uh, right after I'd just spoken about the Quakers, I I thought I would just read, uh, I, I marked a, that this quote was was interesting and, and encouraging. Um, and it's kind of, it's kind of not, doesn't exactly fall in line with, with a lot of the other, a lot of the rest of the book. Um, but on page 376, I'll just read the most of the entire page. In far too many people, the achievement of these objectives creates something of a trap. The struggle is better than the achievement. The great Swiss psychologist, the great Swiss, um, the great Swiss psychologist Carl Jung had an American businessman as a patient early in the century. The businessman had these very, very ambitious plans as a young man. He had worked to establish his own business and to make enough money to retire by the age of 40. He married a young and attractive woman. He bought a beautiful home. He had a young family. His business was highly successful. And by the age of 40, he had indeed been able to sell out and retire a rich and independent man with apparently nothing to to worry about. At first, he enjoyed his freedom, was able to do things he had long promised himself, and had he took his family to Europe. He, they visited art galleries and so on. Gradually, these interests and his sense of freedom with it be, itself began to pale. He started to look back at the time when he was not free, when he was working all hours at his business and had all the usual business worries as the happiest period of his life. He fell into a depression which led his wife to bring him to Jung as a patient. Jung diagnosed him, in effect, as having no outlet for his creative energy, which had turned in on him and was destroying him. The diagnosis may well have been correct, but it did not lead to a cure. The businessman never recovered from his nervous breakdown. For human beings, it is the struggle rather than the achievement that matters. We are made for action, and the achievement can prove to be a great disappointment. The ambition whatever it may be, sets the struggle in motion, but the struggle is more enjoyable than its own result, even when the objective is fully achieved. And of course, for most people, the objectives can be achieved only partially. Most of us do not have as much money as we would like and do not live in our dream house. We have to settle for something less. This sense of virtue is dynamic, that it consists in the effort rather than the result. Develops the sense that virtue is dynamic, that it consists in the effort rather than the result, developed strongly in the 19th century and in different ways. There is a well-known poem by Arthur Hugh Clough that brought comfort to many people in the life and death struggle of the Second World War. It is worth noting that the suicide rates in the warring countries fell in the Second World War. Even the struggle of war can be better than the depression of inactivity. Uh, so yeah, actually I got, uh, cut off there right at the beginning, um, by my app, but, um, yeah, no, I, th I had put that in my notes and I was running and, uh, just found for some reason, the exact wording of it seemed, uh, very profound and helpful and, um, and interesting. Um, and so I thought it would, was going to be ruined if I tried to paraphrase it, um, the, the bit there about the not living in a, whatever our dream house is, is a bit rich coming from Lord, <laughs> uh, Lord Reese Mogg, you bastard. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, um, thank him for, uh, this book. I, I really, uh, I really enjoyed it. It was hard to, it was hard to get through. Uh, like I said, I took a huge break in audio booking it and taking notes on it but when I came back to it I whatever I whatever I was in a different place or a spot or something then and, and uh seemed to, to cruise through it and I think it's probably um I mean it, granted you know you kind of get all all hyped up on its predictions and in their vein of thinking and whatever listen to too many people on Twitter and now I've got coronavirus and protests and Trump and everything like that. And so maybe um, the predictions and the value of these predictions is um, overweighted um, compared to where they, compared to where they should be. But uh, 
uh, I don't know. I think I, th- I, I haven't looked at it, but I, I could almost say like, you know, this is like a top five book as far as like life influence um, might go. I, I remember at a certain point in this book, I was like, oh man, this is so good. This, after I'd already set it aside, I came back to it. I was like, man, this is so good. This is just hitting home run after home run uh, of important things that I feel, felt like I needed to know. Um, I was like, I need to, I need to make sure I have this in hardcover because I like to buy my favorite audiobook and then buy my favorite ones in, in used hardcover. And uh, and I got on there to Amazon and realized that I had, I had already bought it <laughs> two years earlier, a year and a half earlier. Um, I thought that was funny. Um, so yeah, that that's it. Um, five stars and. Uh, as if it's tough to audiobook, then I would think it would be even tougher to read. Um, but uh, have a go, and uh, if you don't end up audiobooking, I would definitely say, uh, yeah, try to try to find some other podcasts. Do a do a podcast search for uh, I don't know. I, you can do Mog because I would come up with Jacob Rees Mog stuff. I wonder if you can just find the Sovereign Individual or or read outlines of it because uh, I think it's a very important formative text. All right. That's it. Thanks a lot. Bye.